Revelation chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 20 this morning. I want to begin this morning by asking a, a, simply, uh, a, a simple yet complex question. Why should we care about the church? Why should we care about the church? Why should we be a part of this thing that has been happening for over 2,000 years, represented in multiple languages and cultures and denominations and styles? What difference does it truly make? I, I hear the, the uh, language all the time, well, I can love Jesus but not the church. And I get people when they say that. I, I know there's even people here this morning that have been truly hurt by the church, have been wronged by a church, and sometimes that can jade one view of the church. Or, uh, and obviously I want to be sensitive to that, but at the same time, I want us to see the emphasis in Scripture on rela- in relationship to loving Jesus and Loving the church. And so if you're here today and you love the church, that's great. Perhaps revelation will help you gain even a better foundation for caring for and living among Jesus' church. But for those of you who struggle with the church and you wonder why you should care, and my hope is that through this text, the Spirit will allow you to see the beauty and what it means to be a part of this historic yet essential part of following Jesus, which is to be invested in the local church. So before we dive into Revelation chapter 1, I want you to know the author. I want you to know who wrote this book. Uh, Revelation was written by a man who loved Jesus and he loved Jesus' church. The book of Revelation was written by uh, a man named John. Not to be confused with John the baptizer earlier in the Gospels, but this is John, the disciple of Jesus Christ. This is a man who walked with Jesus and through his writings between um, the, the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's clear that he understood Jesus' love. He uses the word love in reference to God more than any other New Testament writer. In fact, in John, in 1 John chapter 4, this writer, John, the same author of Revelation, he uh, uses and defines God as love multiple times throughout the Gospel of John. He refers to himself as the other disciple, not mentioning his own name, or he would refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, the writer of Revelation, loved Jesus, and he believed that Jesus loved him. But not only that, but John loves Jesus' church. When Jesus met John, John was poor. He was an uneducated fisherman. He would be like one of those guys who would hang out at the pier all day, Someone who grew up in a place like Moorhead or Swansboro, North Carolina. Perhaps a thick accent where you can't fully understand him. Maybe thick, leathery skin, hair bleached by the sun, listening to Willie Nelson, drinking Old Milwaukee's Best, which I've heard is not very good. Rough around the edges. In fact, John was known through Luke's Gospel to have a pretty sharp tongue. Jesus refers to John as son of thunder. 
Now, I don't know many librarians named Son of Thunder. You have to earn that kind of name. This is not a name you give to a calm person. This is a name that you would give to someone who's pretty intense. And I'm certain that John had an awesome beard to be called Son of Thunder. You don't get Son of Thunder with peach fuzz and a calm attitude, all right? John was intense. John was a sharp tongue. John was an uneducated fisherman until Jesus called him to himself. But as John, the writer of Revelation, as he follows Jesus, his life is transformed. He becomes a different person. And this is what happens to everyone, by the way, who follows Jesus. Your life will be changed. And John, as he writes in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's very clear that John doesn't know of a relationship with Jesus that doesn't lead to life change. And so early in the gospel accounts, you see John is this abrasive and somewhat absent-minded man who would fire at the hip, whoever would cross him. He'd try to cut a dude's ear off for trying to take Jesus. And this is his personality. This is who he is. John, though, watched Jesus perform miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead. He watched Jesus' compassion and love for many. He even watched Jesus betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas. He saw Jesus handed over to Pilate. He saw Jesus beaten, humiliated, nailed to a cross. And then then John saw Jesus three days later after his resurrection. And then Jesus appeared to John, promising him that he would be a changed man, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what happened in Acts chapter 2 after Jesus ascends to heaven. Immediately we see John become a changed man through the person and work and following Jesus, but also a changed man through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 3, we see John completely different. John has boldness, and we see John who, in Acts 3, with Peter who walks by a beggar who can't, who's been uh, a beggar his whole life, who can't walk. And he tells, John tells this beggar to walk, and then the beggar didn't take instructions very well. He just jumps up and he runs. And then these religious leaders begin to question Peter and John about what gives them authority to do such things, and they say, Jesus gives us the authority. In Acts 4.13, there's this response, this dialogue that happens between these religious leaders and John. And it says this in Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness, these religious leaders, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. John was a normal blue-collar guy, and these religious elite, they look at John, and they are flabbergasted at the life change that this man has. They, they are flabbergasted how this man, being with Jesus, has completely changed his life. And so John, throughout the book of Acts, and Acts sort of lays out the history of the church, John shows up a lot at the beginning of the book of Acts, and then a man named Paul comes along later on in Acts, and then he kind of takes the show. We don't hear a ton about John. We don't hear a ton about Peter. We see some little glimpses of him in Acts 15, and some little parts of him throughout Acts, but it's really more about Paul and his first and second missionary journeys, but we don't really hear about John. But here's, what, here's the thing. John has never stopped preaching the gospel and never stop furthering the kingdom of God through the local church. John has always been doing this. John has been preaching 
to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he's going around sharing the gospel, and he's being persecuted, and he's watching these believers who become followers of Christ, and began building local churches, and he begins to see them persecuted as well. And they try to stop John from preaching the gospel. And so they beat John, they threaten John's life, he still preaches the gospel. And then they actually take John, the Roman Empire takes John, and they put him in a boiling oil and try to burn him to death. Does that stop John? No. He still continues to preach the gospel. So they're like, okay, what are we going to do? This man is seemingly invincible. We can't stop this man from preaching the gospel. Say, we've got to get him away from everybody. So let's just put him on an island so that he will just shut up about Jesus. So they put him on this island called Patmos, which is kind of like we would say it's, like, it's kind of like Alcatraz, like a prison where he would be isolated and he can't communicate to the outside world. But what happens? John begins to pray. He begins to seek the Lord. And there on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, John is praying and he's asking or communing with God. And then he begins to see visions. God begins to give John visions, and he begins to write these visions down. And they're visions of the coming of Christ for the church. And as he writes these things down, this is how we get the book of Revelation. So I'm going to start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is what John writes on the island of Patmos, he says, The revelation of Jesus, of, of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. He's saying anyone. Blessed is anyone. Blessed is us today, Integrity Church, as we read the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is what? Near. Now, there's three words or phrases that I want us to look at. First of all, he says the revelation. Second of all, he says the things that must soon take place. And third is made known. The first word I wanted to look at is revelation, which is the word apocalypsis. It literally means an uncovering of the truth, the, a revelation of the truth. Hence the word or the name of the book, Revelation. I, I read somewhere that Revelation is a book that uh, most people want to hear because they don't want to understand it. So if you ask most people in the church, what's one book that you want to hear about? And they would say, Revelation, because I don't understand it. And then I also saw at the same time, Revelation is the book that preachers in the church want least to teach because they too don't understand it. So we're going to have fun this morning. But it's complicated because it's revealing things to come, which brings us to the next phrase that he says, the things that must soon take place. So it's a revelation, a revealing of something that is either 
happening or going to happen soon. And then he brings us to the third phrase that I want you to see. Made it known. In other words, he made this revelation known to John by sending his angel to to his servant. Now, there's only one other time in the Bible where these three words appear together. And it's actually in Daniel chapter 2. Revelation, by the way, is full of Old Testament references, over 400 in fact. And this is actually the first one. But I want you to see this because it's huge. For understanding Daniel chapter 2, we have to understand, or to understand Revelation chapter 1 and the whole book of Revelation, we have to understand what's happening in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is interpreting a dream or a vision for a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar about the future. Nebuchadnezzar continues to get these dreams from God about what's going to happen in the future. And so he reaches out to God's people and he meets Daniel and Daniel is there to interpret these dreams. And as as Daniel interprets it, what we're going to see is the exact words that we saw in Revelation chapter 1 that show up in Daniel chapter 2. The word apocalypse is used five times. Something that will come to pass is used three times. Made known appears two times. And so let me just show you Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. This is, the, this is the interpretation that Daniel has, this prophet, over this pagan king's visions of the future. Daniel 2, verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries that he has made known to Nebuchadnezzar that will be in the latter days. Your dream is... And the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to what is to be. For as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king And that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you've had this dream of the future of God. Through me, it's making it known to you. And right after this, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream that he has. And he describes it perfectly. In the dream, he talks about all kinds of symbols and images of stone and iron and clay and bronze and silver and gold. And then... Daniel interprets what these symbols mean. And I want, you to, I want to kind of bring you to the head of this prophecy, the head of all that's being said here in verse 44, Daniel 2. And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another person. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Notice this, Daniel 2, God uses a dream or a vision to reveal or uncover the reality that one day God was going to set up a kingdom that will never end or never be destroyed. And so when, God, when John on the island of Patmos um, opens the book of Revelation, the very first verse he points us back to in all places in Scripture is that the day when God revealed through a vision of how 
his kingdom would be established forever and never be destroyed. How would this kingdom be established, you asked? Through the church. Through the church. How do we know that? Because he says, okay, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. But the time is near. Blessed are those who hear. That's believers. Blessed are those whose eyes have been opened to the gospel. And then he goes on, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits, by the way, seven is a, a word that shows completion. The seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And make us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. He's talking about the Jews there. Even the Jews will see this. All tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha, which means the beginning, and the Omega, which means the ending, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, John's greeting to the seven churches of Asia Minor, he's saying, hey, church, remember when I went to you and I preached the gospel to you and you repented and believed and I told you about Jesus, the one who performed these miracles and the one who raised people from the dead and the one who promises eternal life through believing in the sacrificial death. Remember that? Well, guess what? He's coming soon. And he's telling these seven churches, I want you to be ready for Christ's return. I want you to be prepared for Christ to come. And he's saying he's always been. So when he died, when he rose from the grave, it doesn't mean he just ended. He continues. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is going to return So be ready. And this is what he says in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that we are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. When John speaks of the tribulation, he's really speaking about the last days. There's a lot of debate on the last days because um, he's talking about the age of the church. And biblically speaking, the last days are really what happened at Pentecost in Acts 2 until Christ returns. So right now, friends, we are actually in the last days. John saw his time as the last days, and we'll be in the last days until Christ returns. And what happens in the last days? He says suffering is going to happen in the last days. The church will suffer for the gospel during the last days. Until Christ returns, the church will suffer for the gospel. That's a guarantee. Anyone who claims the chief end of God is to make believers healthy and wealthy and, and, and live this prosperous life, they're not reading Scripture. Because the, the, the absence of suffering is not the church. The church is always going to suffer until Christ returns. Because suffering is what ends up promoting the gospel. And so he says, during these last days, I've partnered with you in suffering. It's not an odd thing for the church to suffer. 
But now until Christ returns, it's considered the last days. This is why we shouldn't, friends, we shouldn't get carried away by signs and wonders, try to predict when Jesus is going to return. We should just know that we're in the last days, and so things are going to get harder. Things are going to press in more on the gospel. There is going to be more wars. There is going to be more diseases. There is going to be more natural disasters. And by the way, we shouldn't be arrogant Americans and think that every time something bad happens in America, Jesus is going to return. Things are happening bad all over the world that we're completely unaware of. The church is suffering in places that we don't even realize. So every time something happens in the United States, we're like, oh, Jesus is going to return. No, no, no. Things are just going to get worse everywhere. Welcome to Integrity Church. <laughs> but here's the good news. The gospel. The finished work of Christ. His kingdom will be established and all other kingdoms will be decimated. The only thing that will last is the church. God's people. So are things going to get worse? Yes. Not for believers. This is our hell, believers. This is as worse as it gets for us. All right? This is why we, we don't live our best in that life now. We live our best life then. We're in heaven and glory with him. And so this is, what, this is the hope that he wants to build. This is, this is how he communicates to, in the last days, in the church age. That's what we would say. He's telling these seven churches, you can be encouraged. This is why he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the, revela- in the tribulation. John looks at these believers as a family that he's suffering alongside of so that the gospel can go forward. And he says that he's receiving these visions on the Lord's day, meaning that he's reading the Bible, he's in prayer, and he's meditating on the gospel. But look at what the Lord shows him. He says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, we've seen the word seven so many times, several times already. We, I said that was the number of completion. We saw the seven spirits. Now we see the seven lampstands. What does this mean? Well, first of all, you need to know that Revelation is less like a systematic theology book. It's more like a comic book. That's on purpose. The book is designed to communicate through pictures and symbols what it means for Christ to return. In fact, there are some translations in verse 1, instead of saying made it known, actually says signified. Because that's what it literally means. It means to make known or communicate through Signs and symbols. Now, this is the reason why this is so important, because not everything in the book of Revelation is intended to be understood literally. Some people try to read it that way, and they look for literal fulfillments of every single number and every single thing that is mentioned here. But John is telling you from the beginning, hey, look, this book is not intended to be understood symbolically. This book is, is intended, rather, to be understood symbolically. It's visions filled with symbols that signify the coming of God's kingdom on earth. 
It doesn't mean that everything in the book is symbolic. There are some places where John is clearly telling us that something literally is going to happen. But for the most part, the thrust of this book is symbolic. That's the kind of book this is. And so when he says seven lampstands, he's, he's really talking about the seven churches. The lampstands are symbols that the church is supposed to be burning bright for the gospel. But I want you to see, as he gives you this imagery, I want you to see who's standing in the midst of these lampstands. And so perhaps through reading this, we would see why it's important for us to be a part of the church. Revelation 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one, like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, redefined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was sun shining full, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those who are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the, lamp, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I don't know if you see this or not, but Jesus is a boss, all right? I mean, this is not the docile Jesus that we see in Christian movies where he's like the hippie-looking white guy with the sheep on his shoulder, and he always walks into the room like this, just looking around, and he's sort of this pacifist person. No, he's got flaming swords coming out of his mouth. His eyes are, are fiery eyes. He has gray, shining, bright hair. It's showing you age and that he's, he's continued to live on. And as he's coming back, there is going to be warnings of people being prepared because he's coming to take his bride and destroy all other kingdoms that are beneath his This is serious. And he's telling the church, you got to be ready. You got to be ready. But what what he's trying to show them, but in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the seven churches, he's saying, I saw Jesus there. In the middle of the lampstands, in the middle of the seven churches, I saw Jesus there. Here's why that's so important. These churches were a mess, these seven churches. Five out of seven of them were a mess. Two of them were actually doing pretty good. 
But he's saying, even in your mess, church, some of these churches had doctrinal issues, moral issues. Some of them have lost their first love. Nevertheless, Jesus is showing, I'm still in your midst. I'm still at the center. And the church is to be the vessel by which Jesus would be proclaimed. Why? Because God at this point is going to give Jesus his reward for coming to the world, living a perfect sinless life, dying on the cross. And those who would believe through repentance and trusting him and following him, they'll have a changed life. And so here's the thing. When Jesus returns and he sees his bride, his bride is going to be righteous. His bride is going to be pure. His bride is going to be clean. Why? Because it's it's what Christ did in our lives. It's a changed heart. It's the church. It's the church that's going to be different and holy and set apart from the rest of the world. And so when Christ comes and he sees the church, that's his reward. That's what he sees. That's what he enjoys. That's what he looks forward to when he returns. This is what, what we are going to, what Christ is going to see is the church. And so he's in the middle of the church, purifying the church and making us more like him until he returns. In other words, if you want to know Jesus Christ, And what Jesus Christ is doing, you have to be in the church. You won't find the person and work of Jesus Christ through nature or through staring at the mountains or the sunset. Certainly through those things we can know that there is a creator, but we won't find Jesus Christ. You definitely won't find Jesus within yourself. Jesus has chosen to make the church his plan A. And what I mean by that, I'm not saying the organization is so much as believers. Believers are the ones who've been given the spirit of Christ. And they also have the word of God. And this is important to know because why you should be a part of the church. I hear it all the time. That say, people say, well, all we need is Jesus. All we need is Jesus. We don't need theology. We don't need the church. I hear people say that all the time. All we need is Jesus. I mean, that sounds right. Who wants to argue with all we need is Jesus? No one wants to argue that. Of course, we want more of Jesus. Of course, we want to know Jesus. But here's the thing. As soon as you state why you love Jesus, it's hard to do that outside of the church. As soon as you say, well, I love Jesus because of this, this reason right here, the reason would be, Something that you would have heard through the word of God proclaimed by another believer, which is the church. So you can't divorce Christ from the church. For example, if I told you that I love my wife, Jess. I love Jess, guys. I just love Jess, right? You say, well, tell me about her. How tall is she? I don't know. When's her birthday? I don't know. What's her favorite music? Ah, It's not important. I love Jess. What's your favorite thing about her? It's not important. I just love Jess. What makes it important is is things that I know about her. So how do you know more about Jesus? How do you love Jesus? You love Jesus through the proclaiming of God's word, which happens in and through the church, God's people, believers, proclaiming God's word. That is how he set it up so that you would, in fact, love Jesus. This is why you cannot isolate Jesus from the church. Jesus, that's not what Jesus would want you to do. Jesus didn't set it up that way. This is why this chapter, 
is a setup with such is set up with such bold declarations about who Jesus is and how Jesus would appear because he doesn't want them to be confused about who, who he is. And I really think there's a lot of confusion about the church because there's a lot of confusion about Jesus. So the number one reason why you should care about the church is this. Jesus puts himself in the midst of the church. This is how Jesus has chosen to communicate who he is. This is how we make disciples of Jesus. This is how we learn and we grow and together we spread the good news about Jesus. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to see in great detail some things that are happening in seven churches. Two are doing well, five are not doing so well. But what we're going to see in in each church is how God's character shows up and how Jesus is in the midst of all seven. But my hope this morning, my question this morning is for us is this. Do you love Jesus' church? Do you love Jesus' church? I want to tell you this morning, Integrity Church is Jesus' church. There's many churches throughout the world that are Jesus' church. Jesus, this integrity, uh, we, the church doesn't belong to the elders. When I moved here and to plant Integrity Church with my wife and my son, this is not my church. This is Jesus' church. And Jesus tells us in the last days, he wants us to be in the church because that is what he's chosen to put himself in the midst of. The church is God's plan A. And so my question this morning is, if you love the church, how do you display your love for the church? Are you in community with other believers? That's why we have small groups. We want you to be plugged in with other believers. Are you serving others? Are you displaying that care and generosity toward other believers and helping them grow in their faith? Are you giving sacrificially and generously so that the gospel will go forward? Are you working with, through conflict with other believers? Perhaps you have issues with other believers and you haven't dealt with those issues. You haven't dove into those issues. Are you, are you fighting that temptation? Are you working through those things? Are you holding other believers accountable? Are you challenging them to be ready for Christ to return? Are you building other believers up? Are you encouraging other believers? Are we praying for one another? Are we praying for the needs of those around us, those in your small groups? Are we praying together for those around us who are perishing, who are lost? And so this morning, I want you to wrestle with some of those things. Maybe there's other things that Lord would convict you in this morning where we don't love the church and where we need to grow in our love for the church. And I want you to see this morning that the church is not something that we just check off. Check off the list. I went to church this week and that is what I do. No, the church is who you are. And we're called to give our lives to other believers. The church is that the gospel would go forward to the ends of the earth. Integrity Church, if we all get this, if we get this truth, I believe that Greenville, North Carolina, and Eastern North Carolina will be turned upside down for the gospel. And that's our hope. Let us be the church that Jesus is in the midst of. God help us. Let us pray.